Welcome to the Teachers Podcast in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life-work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone, and thank you for listening to this special bonus episode before season two begins later this month. Over the last six months, we, as a teaching profession, have done our absolute best to keep children safe, happy and learning, whether that be in school or at home. Unfortunately, we've been bound to somewhat questionable guidance, dropped from above at unacceptable times and of course, way too frequently. I guess you could say that receiving new guidance in the evening on a bank holiday Friday night, just before schools were set to return, was the straw that broke the camel's back. The profession was once again highly frustrated and understandably so. Many teachers took to Twitter and Facebook to express their views and one head teacher wrote an open letter to Gavin Williamson. And you can find this link in the show notes. So anyway, I reached out to this particular head teacher, Steve Bladden, and I asked him if he fancied chatting to me on the Teachers Podcast and so here we are. So what is this episode actually about then? Well, I asked Steve how he's preparing for going back and I know that some of you will already be back, some of you went back today and some of you are going back next week but it doesn't really matter when because the main purpose is solidarity. The recognition of troubling circumstances from one of your peers and feeling that togetherness with other school leaders and teachers as we all approach a new school year with a let's make the best of it attitude. I really hope that it resonates with you and that you enjoy eavesdropping. Let's get to the interview. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. So this has been um, a kind of a really last minute thing. I I saw you on Facebook that you'd uh, written an open letter to Gavin Williamson. So we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, I think it will amuse quite a lot of teachers. Um, and I reached out to you and just said, you know, do you want to talk on the podcast about kind of how you feel about the changes to the new guidance and, um, what you're going to be doing going back. So, um, I just want to say thank you so much on uh, behalf of the teachers podcast and classroom secrets, but also for all the teachers who are going to learn so much from you. Um, and I suppose really it's, it's more that, um, kind of togetherness of, of head teachers and school leaders of, oh yeah. I feel that way too, and uh, this is this is what I'm doing, and that's similar to you, and and learning from each other as well. So, thank you. Thank you again for asking me. So, I always ask everyone to give me a bit of a background. Um, so, where how how you got into teaching and all that kind of thing. So, do you want to run through um, everything that's interesting and important to know about you? Okay, I will do. Um... So currently I'm a head teacher of a primary school, that's Horncastle Community Primary School. That's in, well, we're the only primary school in a small rural market town of Horncastle. Uh, most people have never heard of Horncastle and um, you might have heard of Lincoln. Uh, Horncastle is about 50 minutes from Lincoln. It's between Lincoln Inland and then Skegness on the coast, which more people might have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Honcastle Primary, it's a big school. It's unusual because we're the only school, but it's a big school. It's three form entry, so we can take over 600 pupils. Yeah. And um, as I say, it's in a traditional rural market town. It's diverse in that uh, we have families who've lived in the area all their lives. We have families who work in farming and agriculture. We also serve one of the nearest um, RAF bases, RAF Coningsby, which people might know of. Um, so we generally have typhoons flying over our school a lot. Um, it's also famous for the Battle of Britain. So we're, we're lucky because we get to see um, quite interesting aircraft and that appeals to quite a lot of adults and children. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's my current school. I've just finished my third year as head in that school. And I've also this summer just finished um, 21 years ed in education, wow. which doesn't really achieve, uh, it doesn't really result in any sort of awards, but uh, it, <laughs> it feels like I should mention it really. Um, so just going back to the beginning, really, um, one of the reasons I became a teacher was because I'd, I'd grown up surrounded by children and um, my mum was a childminder mm -hmm. and we'd had... Our house was always busy. I had two sisters and we always had children in our house, sometimes uh, all day, if it was the holidays, sometimes before and after school. And um, I'd always enjoyed the fact that our house was busy and that there were, um, that there were children around us. And, and I knew I was keen to work with children in some capacity. Um, I went to a grammar school in, in the town I lived, which was Boston in Lincolnshire. Mm -hmm. And um, typically at the end of grammar school, the um, students went off to university. Um, but when it came for my time, I knew I was interested in working with children, but I wasn't really sure. And I also had had enough of learning, if I'm honest. Mm. So I took a bit of an unusual step and decided not to go to university initially. And instead um, took a different route, which was to do an MVQ level three in childcare and education. So immediately after my A-levels, um, a friend of mine actually as well, and I, we, we undertook this MVQ. That basically meant that we were working as teaching assistants or kind of apprentice teaching assistants, you would say now really, in a local primary school. I was in a reception unit, two, two reception classes. Um, I think at the time we earned something like £35 a week. We got a gyro, which mm. most people won't have heard of now. And we went, we, we got, got presented with those on a Thursday. I think we could cash them at the post office or something like that. Mm. And um, I've probably said too much detail there. But basically, I spent four days a week <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a reception class and then had a fifth day where we studied um, and spent a year doing that. And what I learned there was that I just adored being in a, in a primary school and certainly around young children in reception. Um, and it really cemented my ambition to become a teacher. Mm. And so that was the year I decided I would go away and study and I would train as a teacher. Um, but also because of the way the timing worked and UCAS applications, it also meant that I wasn't able to do that the, the subsequent year. So in my second year after leaving school, um, I did all sorts really. I was I was applying for university for teacher training, but also um, got a few quite uh, menial jobs. I I worked in a local pub and I worked in ASDA, 
sometimes I worked both jobs the same day, saved up, applied for university, and eventually found myself at St. Martin's College, which was a traditional and well-known uh, teacher training institution in Lancaster. It's now called the University of Cumbria, uh, but I went there in 1995, did a four-year uh, QTS degree with an early year specialism, and then graduated in 1999 and became a reception teacher. Um, and that really was the start of what became a 17-year period working in the county of Lancashire and in the authority of Blackburn with Darwin. I was a reception teacher in my first school in Blackburn, which was called St Thomas's. I then had a stint in year two in the same school, moved from there to a local school and became um, early years foundation stage and key stage one leader, which was an ambition and which was fantastic. And that led to becoming to me becoming assistant head in the same school a while later. And then further down the line, um, I applied for a job in what was then a local infant school. And I became a head teacher there too, which was called Cedars Infant School. That was in Blackburn. And I remained head there until 2017 when my family and I took the decision to relocate back to Lincolnshire, which is where my wife and I had both met and grown up. And we decided to come back here to be nearer to our own family. So we relocated and I took up a, another headship at Horncastle Primary School. As I say, I've been there for three years now. Wow, thank you. So how did you find that transition then? Um, so obviously you you was uh, in key stage one a lot and I always find it fascinating because sometimes I feel like men get shoehorned into um, the key stage two and I think it's so wonderful when you see men in key stage one, um, especially when you've stood your ground and, and funnily enough I've had quite a few men on the podcast who have, have been like yes I'm in key stage one um, and are really interested in early years. So obviously when you moved to be a head teacher for the second time, you'd already been a head teacher, but of an infant school. So how did you find that transition? Because I suppose really it's um, kind of an introduction to a whole new key stage. Um, yeah, I guess I, I did actually miss a bit of my career out actually uh, in, in trying to be oh. brief. Um, so my first headship started off in an infant school. It was a three form entry infant school uh, with its own nursery. Um, but in, after I'd been there about a year, there was some discussions going on with the local authority about the, what was the feeder junior school and well, to cut a very long story short, eventually our school expanded to become a full through primary school, okay. taking in the pupils of what was our feeder junior school. So. I became the head of an infant school in 2011 and then in September 2013 we re reopened effectively and, and rebranded as a full primary school, a split site primary school, three form entry uh, with over 600 children at the time. So I did that for four years in the northwest and then relocated to another primary school in Lincolnshire. So you got, you got your gradual experience in there before you moved? Um, I um, I've done quite a, a bit of teaching at a split form, a split site school in Halifax, um, and it was a similar thing. 
how how did they have it? Because I always find it really interesting. Was it where you had key stage one at one site and key stage two at another site, or did you split it so you kind of had two kind of schools running together? Well, that's a good model, isn't it? Um, no, it, it was the more uh, traditional model. We, we the building that was historically the infant school where I first became head, um, that that retained the infant mm. um, facility really with its own nursery. And then the school building, which had formerly been the junior school, that became our key stage two department, for want of a better word. Yeah. And um, so we were split across um, across sites and across the key stages. Um, actually, the last thing that was happening before I left was um, a huge plan, which we'd spent about two years working on to bring the two sites together. And, it, and mm. it, the school is now currently on one site. Oh, wow, that's good. Yeah, because I do think um, it, it's really nice to have a split site because it's it's quite unique, isn't it? But it, it, it does bring its own challenge as well. You've, you've got to just be doing extra. And um, I remember th- these two, two sites were not particularly that far away, but in order, it would be a 15-minute walk for the children. So to do things like um, after-school clubs or anything of real value, you needed a minibus. Um you know, and it's that extra cost, isn't it? Um, but yeah, interesting. Thank you. Um, right. So I want to get to the questions then. Um, and the team have done a cracking job. Um, so I just want to shout out to Jan, Lee, Lisa and Jill, because they, they've come up with some really good questions. And obviously we, we've just talked about that. Um, but I think, you know, these, it's really good to talk about these things because this must be what every head teacher and school leader and even teacher is thinking about um across the country right now and and even in places that that are in the UK as well um so how are you planning to cope with children returning to school then with all the usual coughs colds sneezes so we know that a temperature or a cough is a symptom and children you know and are inevitably going to get these so how what's your plan around that i mean that's a really good question to start thank you for that um sorry we did say it's going to be like an interview for you wow um (laughs) i mean we've been we (laughs) we'll see um (laughs) this is something we've just been discussing for a long time um so obviously illness in a school but particularly in a primary school it's just something we we I've always lived with and dealt with and never really thought twice about. And now we're in this bizarre situation where potentially every child with a cough or a bad chest or a temperature or other symptoms could potentially have the virus and could potentially put other people at risk. Mm. Um, And it's something, I mean, the word has been overused this year by government, but unprecedented. It it is Mm. unprecedented. And we're having to make decisions that we've never made before, which is where it gets really tricky. But what I try to hang on to is the fact that you've got to be sensible. You can't just make really strict rules or um, really make things really narrow for yourself because actually we've got schools to run and and a school is a complex organization and, um, you've got employees you've got pupils you've got families you've got a local community and the things that we do have implications um very widely so 
I've talked to my senior staff just last week about how, how we tackle this because usually you'll know the first few weeks of September you generally get pretty good attendance and uh, you, you've got your new arrivals in reception and nursery and then everyone's excited to be moving up and then in my experience come the end of September you've got some of the younger children starting to get quite tired and then uh, lo and behold a few people have started catching germs or mm-hmm. spreading them however they spread yeah. and you know some people have got too close in the sand tray and um, you know we know from headlights that things things spread quite quickly yeah. um, so I'm thinking rationally by the end of September and early October, we'll be in a situation where some children are ill and we've got to make a decision. Are they ill with something which is a potential risk um, and which, which is too serious to ignore? Or are there symptoms, something else, which actually we've got to live with mm. going forward because to stop the school for every cough and temperature and potential case of COVID-19 could be really problematic. And I think that's where that's where we've got to with schools, because on the one hand, schools have been tasked with reopening. Um, but on the other hand, it's not really business as usual. It, it's everybody in, mm. but there's, there's this whole load of what if questions. Yeah. So the truth is, I don't really have the answer to the question you've asked, because we're going to have to wait and see um how things pan out which wouldn't probably sound very reassuring to any parents um and, and perhaps some staff would think why is he saying that we've got to wait and see but what i mean is i don't want to say here from home on a sunday night um yeah every time a child's got a temperature absolutely they're going home and you know mm-hmm. they've got a sniff they're going home we've got to have guidance and we've got to have a starting point yeah. so we've got protocols in place and Basically, in our school, if children do show the symptoms, which in line with the latest government guidance, which suggests they they, um, might be poorly and potentially have COVID-19, then we've got protocols in place where the child is isolated, where they'll be uh, monitored safely, um, and there'll be protocols for staff. So the supervising staff would have guidance to follow. They would have PPE. They w- we would be calling home and all those things are in place for our school. Mm. But I guess the challenge is what if, it, what if by the end of September, you've got three children in every class where they've got a cold mm. and chances are it will be a cold. It, it, chances are it won't be COVID-19. It won't be coronavirus, but do we then send every child home? Do we shut every class down, every year group, every bubble? Um, and that's a bit of an unknown at the moment. And so to be honest, I don't want to say, we're absolutely doing this. But we, what we do have as a school is protocols for children now. So when we return, when the children are first back on Thursday morning of this week, we've got protocols as a school. We know what we're doing and we'll do that. Yeah. But I, I kind of reserve the right to be pragmatic and to make different decisions as time goes on and as the, as, as the national picture changes. But I, you know... And I know you said, oh, that might not be reassuring for a parent, but I'm a parent and, and, and maybe this is just my, my business head on. And, and I do talk about that a bit sometimes on the podcast, but I completely agree. I, that's a situation that you will work out as and when, if you get to that, 
Um, and, it, and it's very difficult because we don't really know how things are going to transpire. We also don't know how the guidance is going to transpire either. Um, and I think, you know, a parent might also be concerned that if every time your child sneezes, they will be sent home. I know that um, I've got a two-year-old and um, when we first sent her back to nursery, um, which was before the, the school holiday, she's on holiday now, I was thinking, well, she's always coughing. Are they going to send her home? Am I going to be paying to not be able to send her and um it's it's so difficult with how are we supposed to to really know um i guess we're not all we can do is like you say have a good plan in place and then and then follow that plan and tweak it as needed as you find out more information i, I think that's a really good answer um so thank i you. think oh sorry i i think um the whole crux of the plan for, for leading a school and for teaching and working in a school through the next few months, it's about being dynamic. You, you can have mm. protocols and plans and, and theories and you can have opinions, but what you've got to do is be able to adapt and change yeah. and see what happens and then see what is workable. Because um, if we don't do that, we could end up in a situation where entire towns and cities and areas have their schools shut down again very, very quickly, um, which would be disastrous in many ways. Mm. oh absolutely i mean we live in one of the areas where they've um sort of heightened the re the restrictions again um so we're not even allowed to stand in families gardens anymore um in halifax um and it is a pain because it is kind of a blanket ban so in the smaller areas where we live there hasn't been any cases for seven weeks um but in some of the other areas there has been um and so following that model it would be so easy for the whole country to be in in a lockdown again um if we're not careful it's so difficult isn't it um so given the lack of guidance from the government um <laughs> although they did just give us some more guidance you know on friday night how nice of them um what guidance are you going to offer to your staff um you know how how are you expecting your staff to identify a child who who might be showing symptoms so um one of the advantages we have as a school in, in a certain respect is that we, we've been open right through lockdown and we've been busy right through lockdown. And um, that's been helpful for us because, well, in many ways, but, but we also know what we're dealing with in some respects because we've, um, on our busiest days, we've had over a hundred children in. And it's not as though we're just reopening now having been away for five and a half months mm. really what we're about the next phase that we're about to enter as a school is is really an expansion of what we've been doing since march so there will be different challenges but the, we're, we're we're in an okay position because my teachers my teaching assistants my support staff um we, this is what we've been doing since march mm. um so i don't suddenly have to introduce my staff to a whole load of new um practices and expectations and guidance it's just making sure what we've got is tight and that making people are up to speed with the latest version of what we're doing so we have a staff handbook which we um which we've written and which on tuesday we've got the first of two inset days and the first session of the day will be um going through parts of the staff handbook and then we expect that staff will um will have read the handbook pretty quickly 
Um, but again, there's no surprises in there. I don't like to do the kind of thing that happens to us as a profession where you just drop in some important things and, and uh, expect that people get them. You, you can't do that. So um, we've kept staff informed, I think, well, right through lockdown. We've had um, regular Zoom staff meetings with teachers and support staff, and we've had regular emails and messages on an app, Parent Hub app, which we have for staff and parents. So all of the things we've been doing, whether it's about what to wear or about um, identifying an ill child, all of those things are, are well established now. And as I say, really, it's just ramping it up because even though we've had 100 children on Sundays, now we're going back to having 500 children. Mm. So we're going to have to keep our wits about us and, um, you know, Logically, there will be more children falling ill and there will be um, more children per classroom, more opportunity to to breach distancing and all those things. Um, I'm sorry, I've slightly lost what the actual question was at the beginning here, but... Um, um, it was how, um, how, are how are teachers supposed to um, know if a child is displaying those symptoms? Um, but what you've kind of answered the question, really, what you're saying is... We've, we've got the experience to do that already. We've, we've already been doing that through, through lockdown. Um, so what testing will you have in place then? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm waiting for um, the kits that we've been promised. All um, right, yeah, that was for me to ask. So go on, carry on. Yeah, to be fair, they, they could have been delivered or attempted to have been delivered this weekend, but um, I don't actually know lots about them. I believe we're getting 10 kits per school um and you're a big school so how do you feel about that well i'm not sure actually when uh, when it first came out like like lots of other things this year it comes out publicly and then you read it as a leader thinking oh i, I didn't know that and then people start asking you what you're doing about it um yes, I, it, yes. if that's <laughs> if that's the case um i presume that means that a nearby school with 60 children will get 10 kits and yeah. A school with 500 children gets 10 kits. I, I, I don't quite get that, but I don't really, um, I'm not fully up to speed with what the purpose of the kits is because presumably if you're just getting your 10 and you've tested 10 times, uh, I'm, I'm not really sure where that leaves you. Um, so yeah. if I'm honest, I don't really understand the thinking between the 10 test kits. It seems neither here nor there. Yeah, yeah, it's strange to um, just, just, just to to get those 10 kits for, for any school because there will be primary schools that, that are even bigger than yours, you know, which are far farm entry or something. Um, I just think it's really interesting when you made the comment about um, as a school leader, you read it and everyone asks you all about it. And like, I can concur with that. I mean, I feel like I'm asked a lot about school, even though I find out at the same time as everyone else. But, you know, I think it's the same um in lots of leader positions isn't it where um you kind of find out the guidance so when they did the briefings for coronavirus and all the employment information it's like unfortunately we don't have this kind of inside track where we can get this extra information that nobody else gets um you kind of just left to muddle your way through and um it's quite a vulnerable sort of position to be in i guess um because we we have to look like we know what we're talking about and make the right decisions, but we don't know any more than anyone else, do we? No, and it's, be, it's become the story of, of education this year, really, hasn't it? That mm -hmm. there's been, 
we've been in this unusual situation. There's been guidance put out there, but genuine, generally speaking, um, you know, from when lockdown was announced, we, we a few colleagues and I sat, stood in my school office and we watched the Prime Minister announce it and we heard it as a school at the same time as all the parents heard it. And really that's been the pattern then of the pandemic, hasn't it, for schools. The guidance is published. There's no heads up. There's no uh, advanced viewing or draft version for, for schools. It's made public. Then you find out it's made public. Sometimes by somebody on Facebook saying, oh, have you seen there's a new version of, oh, yeah. of this? So um, that's, that's a challenge, isn't it, to to respond because when you're a professional uh, and and a teacher, let alone a, a leader, you, you need to understand things, you need to have time to digest and you need to yeah. be able to interpret. And then in the case of being ahead, you need to be able to think, well, what does that mean for my staff and my school community? And how will I share this information? And how will we, um, how will we implement this? Mm. And that's, that's an ongoing challenge, isn't it, at the moment? Especially when you've started implementing something and then it changes, that must be so frustrating um, because you don't really feel like you're getting anywhere. Or, um, I mean, one of the things that I sort of said uh, this morning, I, d- I did a Facebook Live, was as, as a leader, um, I'm always looking at ways to kind of uh, maybe save money and save time to be more efficient. And one of the things that's really upset me about this guidance is um so the government doesn't need to save money because they don't pay overtime so they have no good reason to save somebody's time they've wasted it and that i find that quite upsetting if they were paying overtime then perhaps they would have thought more about all the time that they were wasting do you see what i'm saying but because that time comes free then it's so easy to go oh well here's some more here's some more and um, that's a difficult thing for me because I think time is so much more important than money and time that people should be spending with the families or doing last minute preparations for, obviously this is for the children, but for the actual children, something that's really going to sort of make the for the return to school after after six months, possibly at home fun instead of having to go through all the guidance again and try and work out what has been changed. It's just very frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I make reference to that lightheartedly in my letter to um, the education secretary about the playing spot, the difference really, which it's, you know, that kind of thing to me just seems really simply simple to fix. Um, send out a document that says what's what's the latest changes or mm. what's new um that allows us to use our time wisely and then yeah. to spend the rest of our time on the right things um yeah. I, I you know i imagine most school leaders across the country have spent a lot of time this summer getting their schools ready and their staff ready and finding ways to um make the whole situation positive for the parental community, um, trying to encourage staff who might feel anxious or stressed or worried about returning to work perhaps. Um, and you do that off the latest guidance. And we've been saying for several weeks or so that the latest guidance was brought was uh, published on August the 7th. So we kind of expect more, but that's mm-hmm. all you can go off. So on a personally, we've, we've planned inset, we've planned 
what school looks like and how school will operate based on the guidance that was published on August the 7th because that was what the, was published at the time we were able to concentrate our efforts and I think to suddenly um, change now could actually be quite dangerous because it risks you having to rush and not consider things in the same way um, yeah yeah and, and some schools have gone back already as well so let's talk about um, your open letter then so it's on your blog um, so I, I read it and I thought it was really good it's been shared quite a lot um, so probably you know people listening to the podcast now have probably already seen the open letter um, and you do talk about spot the difference I mean what would you say so say this was to happen again or, or when they release guidance again I mean, if by any chance Gavin Williamson was listening to my podcast, if you are, by the way, I'm definitely open to you coming on for an interview. Um, but say uh, they kind of got wind of, of, of this, what would you say that they need to consider next time when they release the guidance? You know, what is most helpful to make sure they're not wasting teachers and school leaders' time? Um, well, if I'm absolutely honest, um, and, and this might shock some listeners and and make others feel happy um i've not really paid much attention to the guidance that was published on friday mm-hmm. uh, and that's because um i run a school and gavin williamson doesn't and neither does nick gibb mm. um and i've spent months adapting my school to be able to operate safely in a pandemic and i've spent quite a lot of the summer and my senior leaders have too, and many of my staff have, have given time above and beyond what they normally would in the summer mm. to get their heads around what classrooms need to look like, what learning will look like, um, how they pick up the pieces, yeah. um, what, what our school needs to be like in September. And we've done that um, with our own judgment, our own expertise, our own knowledge off the, off the last guidance we had available. Um, and, and the thing I would say is not really about the content of the guidance, because I, I think there's always going to be problems with the content because it's written by civil servants and, mm. and, and by and large, not not educationalists. So I could always pick fault with the content. I think the issue is around integrity and around trust. And I think more widely, there's a big issue now, particularly because... Uh, the profession feels undervalued and mm. people feel like we've not been treated as well as we should have done. Um, I personally believe that education is the most important profession in, mm. in a civilised society. And um, things like dropping guidance on a Friday night or in the middle of the night, as has happened this, this yeah. year, or on a bank holiday Monday, that's not the way to treat a profession um, yeah. People need time, uh, they need consulting, mm. um, and, and that builds respect and, um, and it builds positivity in a profession. So I think, you know, to me, this is like when I was younger and I was revising the night before an exam, and my mum would tell me that's a bit daft, revising the night before an exam, and she was right. Um, you don't want guidance about something at the 11th hour. Mm. And our profession has been saying for months, please can we have the guidance? What's plan B? Um, and really, I'd be saying, come on, we, we don't need this on the Friday at the end of a six-week 
holiday in inverted commas that's not the time to release important guidance mm. in a pandemic the likes of which the world has never seen before this is too important mm. um, I, I can't think of an excuse for things not being done more timely no no i agree and i think yes it's difficult because things are moving all the time um but the timing has been particularly bad and i think you know we say that you've obviously said that the profession's kind of taken a knock um and felt undervalued during this time but i'd argue that they already felt like that before and this has just made it worse unfortunately it's kind of like uh an extra an extra thing isn't it because um I mean even even when I kind of left teaching as it was we we felt undervalued then and I think that was 2014 um probably when I was last um in the classroom full-time so it's um it's been a, a tricky time and um it's hard to know where you know how we're going to see a way through and and, and where we're going to get to and and if we're going to get to a better place i guess um it's so tricky um one question um that i've got for you then so are you planning on taking the temperatures of the children we're not no no that's not part of our of our plan and i think sometimes you have to make decisions which are are bespoke to your situation and i i think if some heads and some schools or trusts or local authorities say you need to be taking the temperature I, I would think well fine and good mm. for you and if you think that's what's necessary and right that's that's important um i'm in a school of 500 children it's a yeah. it's a big site i'm on we're in four buildings and then when you start thinking about the practicalities of how that happens you know yeah. do you have lot do you have a team of people at every gate and access point and, and they point a uh, thermometer at every child as they arrive uh, you know when you think about the time of that and the practicalities it's just enormous um, oh. and then you start thinking well do we then do we do the same for the parent that's holding their hand mm -hmm. um, and if they're coming in in families you know that I just think that's an enormous um, practice to be mm. undertaking I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it and, and um, many of the schools near my school are much much smaller we've We've got you know very small rural schools quite often in Lincolnshire where mm. it might be much easier um, to do that. But on saying that, it's still a it's still a, a time commitment, isn't it? And who mm. does it? Where do they do it? Yeah. Um, what, what? How do they do it? I mean, we we took our family to um, a play centre the other day for the first time since play centres have reopened, and you know a, a stranger who worked there pointed a digital thermometer at my youngest daughter's head and just said mm -hmm. stand there uh, and and actually the, the the practice of that it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't very yeah. refined um and you know we don't want children thinking they are actually in 1984 this um yeah. we've got to find ways of doing things and, and in my in my context doing that with 500 children i just think we'd need a lot of thermometers and a yeah. lot of people to do it that would that would be a, a big practice and also as well it's not forced to be accurate the digital thermometers i mean i i've used them quite a lot in the last four years um and then i don't think they're that great um and accurate to be honest and you know some children their temperature can be quite low anyway um 
so they could have a raised temperature, but it wouldn't show us a raised temperature. No, I agree. Normally low, low temperature. So, um, I suppose it's 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 those things, isn't it? So some some schools will be focusing on temperatures, and some schools will be focusing on on different things, and um, it's just kind of just have to do what feels right for you. You do, and I think one of the other one of the other things we've learned in the last um, five or five and a half months is about part of our role now is about being vigilant and, and teachers are good at being vigilant and, and support staff too. And that, that's what we do. And, you know, teachers, uh, they can spot usually when a child is not themselves and they're feeling ill or, you know, that they're not, maybe they're more reticent in class. But the way I see it is we've got to kind of turn all of these things up to 11. So, just being more aware of, of children's behaviour and if, if they once they're in school if, if they don't seem themselves that's one of the points of stepping in mm. and thinking well you know can we preempt this because of course for some children there'll be a, a period of falling ill rather than arriving at school being ill yes yes and, and we know that in in normal circumstances when a child starts being ill with something it's not that they've been sick at the school gates and then you later send them home it, it something comes on doesn't it and, and they get sent yeah. home and we're just going to have to find ways of managing that well yeah yeah and i guess as the more time goes on and, and if it does happen where um schools have got a case of covid they'll learn from that that experience as well um but it's very difficult to deal with something that you've not technically experienced before um so how many how many single cases um are you planning on sort of having in a class before the class is sent home or how many in the school before a school is closed? That's a really good question. I wish I had the staff handbook in front of me because I, I don't want to get this wrong. Um, I'll do the, the politicians thing of slightly sidestepping the question because what, what we're actually, the way we've organised the school is that we're saying classes are bubbles and year groups are bubbles. And I think lots of schools are saying that. Mm -hmm. um, and we everything in school apart from breakfast club will be in those bubbles in certain rooms of the school breakfast club has been the only thing which which has challenged us because we've got children from nursery to year six and that physically they've got to all be in the same hall mm -hmm. um but if the if there becomes a case of the virus in in a class then we'll make a decision at that time based on the local authority's latest guidance mm -hmm. about responding. Um, and I'm sorry that that sounds really like a cop-out, but I think that's one of the things which is dynamic. Um, I agree. And I, I don't want to say right now, well, we'll get a case, the year group goes home, because for reasons I've already said, that could be problematic uh, in many respects. So I suspect there will be a number. And there might be an instance when a class goes home or a year group goes home. But the thing that I've talked about a lot with my senior leaders and other friends in education is that this could quickly become a web which involves everybody. So, yes, mm -hmm. OK, you get a case. Let's say you get a case in year two. So you, you decide, well, let's send that class home or let's send that year group home. But of course, okay, that year two child's got a couple of siblings. Mm -hmm. So even though there's no ailment in school, 
rationally there's a chance that the siblings could get it so in that situation you you've sent a whole year group of children home most of whom aren't ill yeah. but you might have siblings of an ill child in school who are ill yeah. and they're passing that on and actually the only thing you could do to stop that is to send home most people in school yeah and you can't be doing that too readily so that's why i'm saying we will need to follow the local authority guidance um and just see how the situation changes over the weeks ahead also it's, it's, it's such a difficult question because i suppose really I, I can understand why parents kind of might expect that a, a school would set out this kind of information but it all depends on what happens as well like you say you know does the child involved have siblings how many siblings does the child involved have um how many children are there in one class um that have taken ill is it one is it a few and all these questions kind of need to be answered before you can make any decisions anyway really um so i think i think it's 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 a really good idea to kind of stay um you know on the fence as it were um because i don't think that you can make decisions in advance when you don't know half of the facts it's really difficult, no, isn't it? Um, it, it really is difficult and we were we were lucky because the area the the area of the country that our school is in was relatively um i don't know how to phrase it it wasn't as affected as adversely as many parts of the country with the with the pandemic mm -hmm. and we were open every single day through through lockdown and we were lucky we didn't have a single case in our school and so we've not experienced what some other schools will have experienced. Um, but that's not to say we didn't have problems because there were several cases where we were aware of potential cases of COVID-19 in the extended family or in a household mm -hmm. where children were attending our, what we called school, not school provision in mm -hmm. lockdown. Um, so we have faced the challenges associated, but none of us really knows what's ahead next week when we've got classes of 20 or 30 uh you know year groups of 60 or 70 um and, and full schools we just we just don't know mm. how many children will be ill and, and and what it will look like yeah it's going to be really interesting moving forward i just think for everybody because we're all stepping into the unknown for what the millionth time this year <laughs> it's been an interesting year um do you think have you got any parents who were who are quite worried to send the children in um i i'm, I'm sure there are there are um i i'm not dealing with any where we've kind of got battles or you know where, where i'm hearing that that we're going to have challenges ahead i i, I think given that we're a school of, of 500 then logically there will there will be some families i'm sure who are thinking is really worrying me and I, I wouldn't blame them I think everyone's mm. entitled to their feelings and their opinion and who am I to to judge that really there will be there will be people I imagine who are desperate for their children to be back in school people who are desperate to be physically able to get back to work which mm. which necessitates their children being somewhere um, and at the other end there will be people who've been shielding mm. and there'll be people who haven't been shielding but have been vulnerable or at risk and there will be people who are seriously worried about 
possibly contracting COVID-19, having an, an ill child come home, and then the implications for their family. And, and mm. I think that that's enormous. Um, and, you know, as a dad of four, I've got a, one of my daughters has um, some, she can have chronic chest problems and has been hospitalized several times mm. um, and is more prone than my other children to become ill in this instance. But, but from a technical point of view, she wasn't shielding, she wasn't any more at risk than some other people in society. But I have worries about her if mm. there were to be an outbreak in her class, in her school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important not to judge. So part of my job this year has been to try and reassure parents, even when sometimes that's been an impossible job because we're trying yeah. to reassure people about things that we're not always certain about ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I've tried to kind of have my dad's hat on when I've been doing that. So we've had, I think communication has been really important in my school in lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, we've, we've carried on being open as most schools have. Um, we've had a relatively large uptake of children attending and we've called the whole thing school, not school. Mm -hmm. And so we've said some children are in school and some children are at home. And that looks different for every single person. Um, and some people have been very glad that their children have been at home because they've been able to wrap their arms around them and, mm. and have them during a really worrying time. Um, when we, when um, schools were allowed to open to more year groups at the start of June, um, we did quite a lot, of, a lot of work with our parents to when we opened up to reception in year one and year six and, and also nursery. Um, and we, we surveyed parents to see who was interested in coming back. And then we explained what provision would look like. And we had some children come back who weren't already attending. And then, uh, and then other parents saw or heard maybe on social media how it was and, and that it was actually different to how maybe the media was portraying or mm. maybe it wasn't as scary as they thought. And oh, actually, this family having a really good time and they're really excited to be back in year one or in year six. And so, and then we started getting phone calls and emails saying, can we come back now? Because mm -hmm. our, our thinking is changing. So I, I think the, 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 the PR, the way you spin it, but, and also the reassurance that you offer is really, really important to parents. People want to know that they're, they're entrusting you mm. with their child in a pandemic, which on paper is madness yeah and you're saying as a school leader look this is what we're doing and i i can't say for 100 percent everything is absolutely safe I, I can't use the term covid secure because i think it's a misnomer but mm. actually i'm a leader i'm a teacher i'm a dad uh, and i'm going to make sure school is safe enough for your children and we'll do everything we can that any other school could possibly do to keep your child safe but I think we have to accept that there'll be some very worried parents out there this weekend and there'll be mm -hmm. some very very worried children and a huge part of our work as schools is going to be welcoming children back and trying to make them feel okay and um, really the bigger picture is that there's a new virus in society which doesn't have a cure or a vaccination. Mm.
and sorry when i say cure i mean this treatment obviously but there is yeah. no vaccination yeah. and we're educating people uh, life will be different you know we, we don't queue in the same way we don't get as close to people in the same way yeah. we do things remotely um life is different and mm. um we're having to show children that and i think the fundamental issue is that when we when we reopen or 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 expand our opening that people have the chance to tell each other how they feel and that um that we do what we can to encourage people back and that we do all that we can to make our schools safe but i think where people are worried and uh, scared we need conversations mm. um so for example there's been quite a lot in the media about attendance and the political point has been well they'll have to attend it's it's legal and there'll be penalty notices mm. and my point of view on that is well that that's true yeah um um technically speaking that's true uh, the the law on attendance hasn't changed so yes children need to be in school we want them to be in school because it's good for them um but actually having an approach where it sounds punitive and judgmental and and trying to scare people to get the children back to school to me that seems counterproductive mm. um that doesn't seem to be a way of respecting people and um, convincing people at a time when you haven't got their full support. Mm. Um, and I, th I, I think there are other ways of doing things. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I'm not keen on the whole fines thing because I, I, I just feel people aren't being given a choice to kind of put their children um, in a difficult situation and it depends where you live but you know i'm halifax is next door to bradford and the cases there have skyrocketed um and if i was a parent of a child in bradford i'd want to know that if i felt appropriate then i had the choice to to keep my child at home um it's so difficult because i mean you know like you as a parent there, there's part of me that's screaming out for okay I've had enough it's so hard to try and work at the same time especially because the two and a four it's like a really difficult age but then on the other hand there's quite a lot of sort of worry because where we are I would say the cases are similar if not worse than when they closed schools last time so it's kind of like well why is it okay now but it, but you close them before um it's so difficult and and i think so many parents and teachers must be feeling both kind of sides of it and i've seen a lot of teachers sort of say do you know what i am nervous but i'm also really excited to get back to school because i know i know it's important that, that that children go back it's just such um a strange place to be in isn't it you kind of don't know it's weird to feel two things is what I'm saying that kind of contradict each other. Yeah. And, and it comes back to the earlier point that this has just never happened before. Mm. Um, you know, September, you have, you recharge your batteries in the summer, you come back, it's a new year, it's a new, a new beginning. And um, it's a time of optimism, optimism and, and excitement. And there's all of that, but it's kind of, conflicted with feelings of uncertainty and 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 how will this pan out and 
well, if I get ill and all those things, all those concerns that people have on a human level. So it's just a, a, a very unusual position for us all to be in. Yeah, it is. It is tricky. So obviously you've talked about having um, bubbles of year groups. So what what's the plan then around um, break times and, and lunch times and things? How, how are you going to have breaks for for staff or is that something that you're just not able to do i suppose with being a bigger school it might be a bit easier but <laughs> yeah you would think <laughs> um, this has kind of been the 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 bugbear of the summer really trying to find solutions to some of these um issues that have arisen so um breaks and lunch times has genuinely been one of the things that have kept me awake at night this summer yeah trying to think about work-life balance for staff and then actually what's practical and achievable yeah. in a school yeah. setting um and so if I tell you that one day last week I went in while school was actually locked up just to be by myself and try and find some answers to the questions in my head and um yeah. we we um we drafted a plan um but then I just wasn't happy with it so um I gave it a few days and <laughs> totally scrapped it and come up, came up with something else. Mm-hmm. Um, the plan is in the morning, year groups are having their own break time, which obviously is, is different to normal, in, I guess, in most schools, because we, we normally have a, a break time in the morning at the same time across the whole school. And we, we, mm-hmm. we're lucky we, we've got lots of space and uh, lots of playgrounds, so the children are spread out. Um, but the beauty of that obviously means you've got X number of staff, teachers mm-hmm. and teaching assistants, and you can have a rotor across the week yeah. and everybody does a couple of duties and everybody knows that that's the way it works in a primary school. Obviously, you go down to year group play times and if you're having different times to the other year groups, you've got a very small number of staff who are available mm. to manage the duties and of course those are the teachers and teaching assistants in those year groups Mm. um so this is one of the big things we'll have to discuss with our staff in tuesday's inset um the fact that break times yes they're important um but really it depends upon the staff in those year groups running those break times and of course that means for a majority of days of the week it will be the staff in those year groups supervising children at break times which isn't ideal and I accept but um, I'm a reasonable person I'm not a tyrant I, I expect people to be able to still go and have a brew and go to the loo yeah and uh, you know deal with something as it comes up but but um, ultimately to be able to give the children an outdoor break we need the same staff that they've got in their year groups normally um, with a few exceptions, a few floating staff and, and senior staff, and we'll we'll all do our bit. Mm-hmm. Um, lunch times has been an absolute massive headache. So at the start of the summer, I had one idea. For most of the summer, I had another idea, and we're about to go ahead with version. <laughs> I don't know what number version <laughs> next week, but really, I'll I keep saying it's a trial, and if it doesn't work, we'll have to do something else. Yeah. Um, I had thought by listening to other heads in July 
that we would need to be in our classrooms. And the thinking behind that was that if you've got hundreds of children in a, in a hall from different year groups, then you're clearly breaching bubbles mm. and undoing the work that you're doing in the rest of the day. Um, so we, we tried to come up with a model where you could have children eating in their classrooms. And to do that, we've, we've changed our, our catering provision, which normally is a hot school meal for those that wish to have mm -hmm. uh, a, a paid meal. Um, those are all packed lunch style as well until October half term. And we were thinking, well, that would be easy to deliver and everybody can eat in their classroom. But of course, you know, as a teacher, that's an absolute pain in many respects. If, oh, yeah. if you've got a class eating in the room that you've been teaching in, it, it means all sorts of things, doesn't it, to teachers? If, if, if somebody's got sandwiches that are particularly potent, um, if, if, you know, if you've got a, a children who are messy eaters or, or not really. You've Especially got, for, it, for key stage one, yeah. It's very difficult. And the other, of course, there's the other things that if we're saying, you know, teachers might be spending their lunch times in their classes because they might not want to go to the staff room or to a, or, or to a communal area. So they might be wanting to be in their room more than they would. And they might want to be doing more marking in school because they don't, you know, when we're saying really, we don't want you doing as much marking at home. So mm. you, it feels like you're taking away too many things by saying you've got children eating yeah. in your room and, and, and you've also kind of, you'll be wanting to be in your room more and also it's hard to set up for the afternoon isn't it all those things so yeah. to cut a long story short we went back to the drawing board and have, have, have come up with a plan for using our school halls we're lucky because we've got two halls and a canteen mm. so we're using the three spaces and each space will be used for two year groups one then a small break and cleaning and then another year group goes in but even with that as a plan it's complicated because there's a whole issue of how do the children get from their room to that hall how yeah. do they get their lunchbox there who brings it back if they're then going straight out to play all of those things i mean we do have answers to most of those questions but you probably don't want to know the details but the the uh, bottom of it is that children will still be eating in halls and um they'll be exclusive to their year group which helps us to retain that that the integrity of their bubbles um but it's not without complication i think the most important thing that you're saying here is it's not necessarily what you're saying it's it's the fact that you have had to think of so many different options and 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 change your mind and move and flex and 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 that's what i think other other school leaders need to no is right um to, to be in that situation so i know that uh, my daughter's going back to school i know that she's going to be eating in the hall i think the primary school are going to get the opportunity to eat in the hall but the secondary school students don't get to eat in the hall every day but just like i know that and just listening to you now that could have taken days to plan that one piece of information out on a on a, a letter that a parent gets and I think it's important that we're aware of that um you know as, as a parent or somebody in the community you read that as as two lines on a, on a piece of paper but that could have taken weeks to to work out and you could have tried out 10 different scenarios and solutions and still not know whether this one's going to be the right one but you have to try some you have to start somewhere don't you 
You do, and um, you know, I'm not. I'm not looking for sympathy. It's part. It's part of the job. But actually, mm. these practical decisions have been amongst the hardest. Yeah. Of all things, you know, we're having to think about pedagogy and philosophy and organisation and practice. Um, but the practical things, and especially in a big school, they're just so complicated. So you look at. I, I've probably spent too long looking at lunchtimes this summer, mm. but actually, we, we kind of boxed off some of the other things which were a bit more straightforward uh, and where you've got fewer options Um, so I think being it's important to be flexible and to be able to say okay do you know what we we did spend those days doing this and we yeah we we did thrash it out and we had a plan and now I'm saying I'm not happy with the plan and that usually you find your other senior leaders say do you know what I'm glad you said that because I wasn't really happy with it and um, yeah I've been worried about it too, but I didn't want to say. Um, and, and I think you've just got to do that as as a leader anyway. Yeah. But also when, when you're dealing with everything that nobody's ever done before, you've just got to be able to say, well, we'll try this. Yes. Or actually, I like that idea on Tuesday, but I'm, I'm not having it today. Um, and to be honest, the, the plan we've got for breaks and lunchtimes, it's all got to change in a few weeks to accommodate reception. Mm. Um, but I just wasn't able to come up with something that I was happy with and that that was achievable with reception and given that their starting is a little bit different anyway um we've decided to come up with a plan for the first few weeks and then it will just evolve and also that's a good plan because by then i'm sure there'll be some more guidance to to (laughs) (laughs) take into consideration by then so you just don't know and you know i suppose we're all waiting to see what happens whether we end up with a load of cases and whether schools do close after you know four weeks or something we just really don't know do we um, we don't and i i think sorry um you know my, my son is at a local secondary school and he's he's going into year eight and obviously he's you know his year seven from a normal point of view ended in march mm-hmm. and um according to the guidance from their school which i'm not criticizing but um his year group will be having their lunch period at 10 past 11 um right. now Obviously, you know, I know that there's been an enormous amount of thought behind the plan. They've sent out detailed documents. So I wouldn't want to knock it because the work that's probably gone into that plan for their secondary school will have been inordinate. However, I think as a head, they'll see pretty quickly that having a year group of 12 or 13 year old boys who have probably only had a couple of lessons before their lunch and then a very long afternoon... Mm. I think they might need to be reviewing that plan fairly yes. soon. I might be wrong because I'm not in, I'm, I don't work in secondary, but. I used um, to work in secondary. I used to be a secondary teacher and I can tell you, you're right. Um, mm, interesting. Flexibility. I, I used to work in a school where um, the lunchtime was not a lunchtime for everyone. So sometimes I'd have the earlier lunch and sometimes have had, I'd have the later lunch. And me personally, I always used to hope I could get four lessons in before lunch. So I only had mm. one at the end of the day. It was awful if you only had like two lessons and then you ended up having a lunchtime. Um, so, I, you know, when you say 10 past 11 for lunch, I'm like, oh, nursery class. Mm. Um, and, and that's what you, what you tend to think about, really, I guess. Yeah, I think we're going to have to give him about three meals by the time he comes home. Uh, yeah, well, I was thinking, I was thinking, wonder what time he gets home. And I wonder how big a snack he'll need. Oh, he'll be asking for one for the way home. Um, will, yeah. 
So obviously you've you've written this open letter to Gavin Williamson. We're going to make sure that you have, um, you know, that it's in the show notes. So it will be in the show notes for, for everyone to look on your blog. And um, what kind of response are you hoping to, to gain from your letter, if any, and from who? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, I mean, in truth, I, I must admit, I, I, I've written a few things this year and a few of them have been shared quite widely. Um, and partly I do it because I find it cathartic. Mm. And um, partly I do it because I like comedy and sometimes I think I'm funnier than I am. Um, <laughs> but also I think humour is really important and, you know, goodness knows you need to be able to laugh and you mm. need to be able to find comedy in the darkest situations I think in this profession and so I've partly done it because it's my mechanism for coping um, so I wrote a daft mock Ofsted inspection of, of my home education in my house earlier in lockdown mm. and then um, written several other things including now this this letter to Gavin Williamson and to be honest um, the guidance came out on Friday night and I didn't know anything about it because that's the way it happens until I went on Facebook and a few people were saying, I can't believe this. So then I went on Twitter and obviously it was on fire with, with yeah. people venting. Um, and I thought, well, you know, each to their own inventing. Sometimes I vent, but actually I thought, well, at least do something. So earlier in the year when I thought the there was no plan for education. I wrote a plan for education and mm -hmm. sent it to anybody and everybody. And when this guidance came out, before I've read it, I've actually written a response to Gavin Williamson, which partly it's got a, a light-hearted undertone and there are some jokes yeah. in. But in truth, it, it's 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 from the heart and it says the main points. I think any teacher or school leader or anybody in education reading would probably think, yeah, he's got a point there. Mm. Um, you don't have to really find it funny, but um, yeah, it's, it's funny though. It's responding. Uh, thanks. <laughs> it's responding <laughs> to. Um, it's responding to the way re we receive guidance. It's yeah. it's responding to the 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 attitude and what I would describe as contempt for school leaders and for the profession during lockdown. Um, and I've also made a point about well-being because I I think it's fundamental and. Um, I think the way things have panned out for the sector this year hasn't been conducive to anybody's well-being. And what we've just had is a, a, a strange summer holiday at the end of a, a very taxing year. And I can only think, personally, I've been exhausted. And I, I think probably there's a profession full of teachers and teaching assistants, office managers and business managers and cleaners and schoolies everybody involved is probably exhausted and has just had the summer to try and recharge their batteries and to try and fuel them for something very difficult that's ahead mm. so then to get some guidance on a friday night just before you're about to do what you've been thinking about for months i think is unforgivable yeah. hence i wrote something as a bit of a response um and um I, I see it's had a bit of a response from from uh, education groups. It has. It's, it's had a lot um, of shares. Um, you know, <laughs> I've tried to say it professionally. Um, I wouldn't mind if Gavin reads it, to be honest, or Boris or Nick Gibb. Um, and I'd happily sit around a table or not a table. No, I wouldn't happily, actually. 
I would, I would chat to them about it. Um, as long as it's COVID some, secure. Uh, it would need to be COVID secure, uh, but I tried to make some key points um, and um, I tried to make people laugh while I'm doing it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's good and you should, uh, you should definitely click on that in the show notes and, and have a read if you haven't. Um, I, um, oh, sorry. I, um, the plan I wrote previously, which, which was called The Way Back to School, and that, that was the first uh, real experience of, of something going a bit viral. And um, that did actually make its way to MPs and to uh, the trade unions um, and to the DfE. And I, I, again, I wrote that for myself. And actually, I thought it was quite a decent plan, but I did really write it for myself and it, it went off in a lot of directions. Um, but sadly, from a political point of view, what I found was I sent it to my town's MP as, as a local resident. I, I sent it to the MP in the constituency where my school is. Um, I also sent it to the uh, shadow, the, the new shadow education uh, secretary. Um, and um, Actually, that was probably one of the nicest responses from from that person. Uh, but from um, you know, th things only go so far, and you get a fairly yeah. standard response from um, from Downing Street. Yes, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so obviously, we're talking about the guidance that that's just been released. Um, what change are you going to have to make? Any changes last minute now? I'm just wondering how honest to be with you and anybody who's listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as I think I said earlier on, I'm yet to re to read the, the document in full. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have seen highlighted on social media some of the main differences from previous versions of the guidance. So I'm comfortable that what we have in place as a school doesn't need to change radically. I think there's a bit of minor tweaking and a few things that we need to discuss as senior leaders but as I said really throughout this it's not really my way to to react quickly and and to say oh goodness this is change or paragraph 13 says this let's do this now that's not I'm not comfortable with that I like to I like to understand things fully mm. and absorb them and then talk to people about them and then make a decision about what suits our school so given that it's a bank holiday tomorrow i've got a planned inset session already for tuesday morning in my mind it would be foolish to make any last minute adaptions unless there was something that i was going to be doing that was wrong and that was endangering my staff and my mm. pupils and i don't believe there is um and i think a really really important point that that you have to remember as a leader or anybody working in education, the documents which keep coming out are guidance. Mm -hmm. And it can be, uh, uh, as, a, as a younger and less experienced head, I, I used to really worry about some of the documents that came out of the DFE. And now I think the, the, uh, the clues in the wording and for all of the, things are presented differently on, on the news, on the daily bulletins and on social media. But in black and white, these documents are guidance and there's very little of the guidance which is actually statutory. There are certain things in some of the areas which are under local lockdown more so, but actually most of the things remain guidance. And I would argue as, as a head or principal or, or, or leader of any 
educational institution you've got to use your judgment your common sense your discretion your knowledge of the community your experience and you check whether it's guidance or whether it's statutory mm. <laughs> and where it's statutory it's probably best to do it but where it's guidance i'd say it's open for interpretation so um we'll be delivering our inset on tuesday we'll be receiving children back in on thursday and we'll be adapting our practices and our protocols over the weeks and probably over the months ahead mm. um but um i i kind of think it's um well actually i don't want to rise to it if i get sent something from the dfe on a friday night i feel it's my duty to not respond by quickly reading it and changing something i'm doing because that doesn't really um that doesn't really change the system yeah and also if you you know you're, you're obviously confident in in what you've set up already so i can't imagine that things would be necessarily that different um one of the things that we've noticed in the guidance that has changed is actually it's moved slightly more towards what we're already um trying to make sure that we were providing for for schools um because I don't know, maybe we're one step ahead, but but because it's sensible, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, the, the good schools will be a step ahead, won't they? You, you, mm. we, we've not been we've not been waiting, saying we don't know what to do. We've not been we've not been told what to do. Schools have got plans in place, and they've got plan plan B in place, and probably plan C and D as well. Um, so um, things will keep changing, and goodness knows how long we're in this for. Um, but um, I think we, we reserve the right to change what we're doing and to change our minds and to change our schools to keep them as safe as possible yeah and as often as, as needed as well um, that's really important so um, how do you think sort of resource companies then like Classroom Secrets um, and, and others could support schools during this time while you adapt to changes and I suppose one of the one of the things in the guidance is about being prepared for remote learning should that happen yeah yeah um I think we're going into the unknown in terms of resources and the companies and and the consultancy work and the resources we use as as primary schools I, I think it's difficult because obviously there's there's kind of the, the guidance or regulations about visitors coming onto site and mm -hmm. and that's at the same time as schools perhaps being a bit cautious with money mm -hmm. and 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 not being um kind of I, I imagine for many schools things like school improvement planning has been paused um mm -hmm. so it puts us in this really odd time for using services and resources so personally we, we've had to make decisions about some of the services and resources we usually use like counseling mm -hmm. um, like the sports company that we use um, and that those decisions have had to come before decisions about other uh, other resources that we might usually be debating using or working alongside and with uh, going forward personally I think one of the big um, the big areas that we'll be focusing on those schools will be will be well-being mm -hmm. and while there will be pressure externally 
to raise standards and to close the gap in inverted commas mm. um i i think that's that will that will be juxtaposed with with really um tangible uh urgency around helping children with their well-being mm. so one of the things when it comes to spending money or looking to who can support us that will be probably at the front of our agenda as a school um thinking around whether we, whether we can tick the boxes uh to to enable every child to move forward not just our school because yeah. every child that comes back is going to live the different version of lockdown and the pandemic and i don't even know at the minute if if the right book or um yeah. course or webinar or or podcast or or courses out there yet for every child because we we yeah. just don't know what we're looking at so i would say just like i keep saying about being flexible as a leader mm. i think we need flexibility from the whole um the whole sector really and everybody that's involved that we mm. can just be um organic and respond to what's ahead so gradually i suspect schools will come back to their school improvement priorities and the work will begin again a bit more in earnest around school improvements but that's going to be alongside every single child's return to education after a long absence um so i would be hoping well, I'd be, I'd just be open-minded, really. I'd be looking out for people and what what they're offering, mm. at the same time as looking at what our children need, so yeah. that we can enable them to thrive and, and and succeed. That's the thing. In some ways, you kind of don't know what you need really till you get the children back in, do you? Um, you know, you don't. We don't, know and, and so, go over things or not. Absolutely, and there'll be, there'll be schools in hard-hit areas where there might be multiple children who've experienced grief and loss mm. and so those schools will have a, a very specific need which and it's quite a niche thing that doesn't exist very well currently mm. um, you know we, we've struggled as a school before to get grief counseling for children mm. i suspect nationally that's something that is going to be needed in a way that's never been needed before yeah. um and but but schools have still got the normal problems of saying well we've got this much money in the budget for cpd but we we were intending to spend it on um i don't know let's say reading exactly we need to spend it on this yeah um, yeah but you you need the you need the providers out there who can offer the quality to meet mm. your need yeah absolutely um okay so have you got any thoughts on what roles the union should be playing so the neu originally told teachers to ignore the guidance for the initial openings but that was widely uh, criticized um you know what what do you feel like they should be doing to um support staff and help the profession maybe in light of the new guidance wow that's a that's a tough question at half past nine on a sunday night at the end of the summer <laughs> i know holidays. it is it is could, very late i bet you god it's not Monday at school in the morning <laughs> <laughs> I could really easily say the wrong thing and upset people. I think it's really important um, to have the discussion about trade unions because obviously they exist to to protect their members mm. uh, amongst other reasons. I'm sure, I'm sure 
uh, people working in the trade unions would give a broader answer than that. But, but that's the way I see it. That if I if I join mm. a, a trade union, I want them to represent me yeah. and to support me and to fight for me. Um, and so quite rightly, um, whatever somebody's role in a school, whether they're support staff or teachers or leaders, that they if they belong to a union, they want their they want their union to be looking out for them and protecting them. And in the case of a pandemic, that means making sure that their their employers are, are behaving appropriately and that they're looking after their health and safety and complying with health and safety law and also mm-hmm. looking out for their well-being. Um, but of course, I see it from two points of view because I'm, I'm a professional and an employee myself and, and I need protecting in exactly the same way. And I'm a member of a union. But also I've got a school to run mm-hmm. and um, I've got a job to do and my staff have got a job to do. And sometimes, not just in the pandemic, but sometimes in the profession, there is conflict between what um, the, the trade union's point of view and um, either the political landscape mm-hmm. or actually what needs to happen to some degree in a school. So I'd say, you know, I would encur- I would always encourage my staff and anybody in the profession to be in a union. I think that's right. And it's important to have that protection. I think it's important that people are open-minded and can see that everything isn't black and white. Mm. Um, I totally understand that there'll be some staff really, really worried about coming back to work. Mm. And there'll be some staff always who, who might work for people who aren't very nice to work for, who, or, are a bit rogue or, or maybe don't pay attention to the detail. And, and you know, I, I think that's just the way it is, isn't it, in any profession? Mm. So the trade unions have an important job, but I think more widely than that, right now we're in a position where education is crucial. You know, it's been the one thing, apart from the NHS, it's been the one thing that the government have been desperate to, to fix and to get back the, the, the number of headlines and front page stories and articles about education has just been phenomenal this year. Mm. And we all have our feelings about the economy, about other reasons and about um, politicians what needing primary schools in particular to, to reopen for the childcare elements. Mm. But I think um, the trade unions have got a really important job in challenging the government and challenging policy uh, but making sure in an event like this that the whole profession is treated fairly and that everybody um, everybody's health and safety matters uh, everybody everybody's well-being matters um, and my worry is the the relationship between some of the trade unions and um, governments are strained Mm. and in my eyes this often becomes political Mm. which there is obviously a a, a political element but it feels sometimes as a member of a union that that the um the politics becomes more important than the actual practice yeah so they get in the middle in the middle when actually what if we want change we we need everybody involved mm. um and 
Um, I think there's, I'm not calling the unions, but um, I think it's been unfortunate the way things have panned out this year because I actually feel that there's been a, an amazing opportunity for trade unions to challenge some of the policy from government and, and some of the things that have happened. And it feels like um, people like me write silly letters and blogs to challenge things which have come out, um, which I hope are being challenged at a higher level by the mm. trade unions. Because mm. if they're not, what are they doing? You have um, done an epic job, well done. I mean, they thought of some amazing questions and you've answered them all brilliantly. Um, I'm really excited to get this out. Thank you so much. Um, anyway, so if you could wave a magic wand, how would you solve the life-work balance problem? Oh, that's a, wow. It's a magic wand, so, you know, be creative. Magic, a magic wand. Yeah. Well, I think the magic wand would be to separate politics from education. Well, yeah. But you definitely need a magic wand for that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that, that would do it. That, that would be a big part of it because you could remove much of the bureaucracy um, and what I like to call the shackles, mm -hmm. which are often unhelpful. Yeah. Um, whether it's assessment, inspection, curriculum, um, and if you could allow educationalists to drive the things that are at the heart of a school, you'd also be able to have your own local policies and procedures which suited you, you as a school and which, which gave your whole workforce um, a healthy work-life balance. Mm. But there is a disclaimer because in 21 years in schools, whether I've been an NQT or an experienced teacher or a key stage leader or a head, it doesn't matter whether you work in a town or a city or a, a rural place. It's, it's a hard job yeah. and it's a time consuming job. And so um, I don't think we should ever pretend we could make it really easy or a lot less time consuming. I think it could just be different. And I think that's what's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, where do you think education is going to go in the next 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> are these, these are the easy questions at the end of an interview. These are the easy Where will questions. education go in 10 years? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I, I, if it was like, what's your favourite biscuit? I was expecting that kind of thing as, a, as an easy question. What is your favourite um, biscuit? Well, actually, it's Abbey Crunch, but they stopped making them about 20 years ago. Yeah, I don't know what that, that is. To that's, a, that's a whole other podcast. Okay, right. I'll book yeah, that one sorry. in for season three. Yeah, yeah, that's a <laughs> tangent. Um, where will education go? Um it's so hard to know, isn't it? I, I yeah. think, uh, Especially obviously, after this. after this, this is kind of just a, yeah, this sort of puts some things on pause, but on the other hand, one of the exciting things about what's happened during the pandemic is that the profession has had a chance to reflect mm. on the things we do and the way we behave uh, and the way we work. And 
I don't know about 10 years, but I really hope that in the not too distant future, we, we start doing things differently just because we can. Mm-hmm. And that might be, so a, a practical example is, I think lots of schools will be saying, we can't do assemblies at the moment because you can't have lots of children in a hall. Mm. Uh, and I've spoken to heads, uh, uh, you know, who've been doing remote assemblies or a kind of a, a, a pre-recording a YouTube clip, or maybe it's a food for thought for the day. And actually, when you think about it, um, we've been doing assemblies since Victorian England. Mm. Uh, and, and that's what you do. And it's important to assemble and to congregate. And that's part of your identity as a school, because you are a community. But actually, in my school, it can take 10 minutes to get the furthest class away uh, into the hall. Mm. Uh, it, it can take a lifetime to dismiss a hall full of children, as everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, what if you use that time differently, but you use you do something equally powerful or more powerful? So, so if I can think of some wise words, or my colleagues can, and we pre-record them or send them out live, but every, ch- every child stays in their classroom and, and they're safer in the current climate, and it creates more time. Well, that's that's something we probably wouldn't have thought of yeah. because we just we do what we do. Yeah. Um, and I hope we really rethink a lot of the things um, that we did as we go forward. Yeah, being more innovative, in, innovative. Yeah, I like that. And um, who was your favourite teacher at school, and why? So, a um, bit of a sob story, really. My dad was. Uh, in the air force so i was i was transient um so i I do have empathy for the transient population really um we i went to four primary schools in six years which is tough actually and it's a little bit sad because i can't remember most of them i can't really remember teachers names or classes or, or even classmates because that's part of the effect of transients but um when it comes to secondary school, I will say I went to the same boys' grammar school, which my son now goes to, and um, there was a man there who was my German teacher in what used to be the first year of secondary school, and um, he might be listening and sometimes follows me. He's called Mr. Anderson, and... Um, he was a breath of fresh air and, and in the 19 in the mid 80s in a, in a boys grammar school um he was an absolute breath of fresh air and he, he taught german i'd never studied german until i went to secondary school and, and i loved it and i loved it because of the way he taught it mm. it was a bit like that dead poet society thing with robin williams and mm. um the man was dynamic and funny and kind and caring and he and he taught well and he enthused and and People in the class loved him, and he, he he taught he taught French as well. He led the cross country club and a charity club and a continental club, and he and, and a trip to Germany and all those things, and everything was infectiously enthusiastic. And and, he, and he, his his love of what he taught rubbed off mm. on me and on his pupils. Um, and he was and he, he committed his his career to that school and to his to his pupils and. Um, a big part of my education really I was less keen on many teachers at that school but um, a really strong teacher and a really he, he shone qualities which 
which were important. Mm. And um, a nice little end to the story is that I'd not really thought about this for a lot of years and um, I've not been in touch with him either, probably for about 25 years. And then three years ago, we relocated and we moved back to Boston in Lincolnshire. Mm -hmm. And um, we signed uh, two of our children up to the local athletics club. And um, I think about two weeks into term, so we'd moved in the August three years ago, we, we were finding our feet. We were, we were a bit glum because we'd relocated. We were, you know, new to a job, didn't know many people and so on. And, and I took my son along to this athletics club and we were in this, what's it, basically a converted barn in the middle of nowhere and um th there's three different sports coaches in this hall and um my son's gone off to do one of the activities and, and i'm imagine it's late september it's cold it's a cold barn basically and mm. it's quite dark and i've been at school all week and i was new to a job and i was quite tired and at the end at, at the far end of this building um there was this man and i thought that's funny he looks um he looks quite a lot like mr anderson um anyway he, he gradually rotated around the hall with the children and i realized it was mr anderson and i'd not seen him for about 25 years mm. and um obviously he's a little bit older now and so am i and he came towards me at one point <laughs> and i looked at him um with my 11 year old son present at the time and i'd said it's mr anderson isn't it and he he put out his hand and said Stevie B, which was what he always called me for oh, wow. seven years. Um, and he shook my hand and it was the night, it was, I swear it was one of the nicest handshakes of my life. This is and, the best um, answer I've ever had for the favourite teacher. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm nearly crying now, actually. But uh, he, it, it was so heartwarming. And the fact that he, I mean, you know, he last saw me when I was 17 or 18. Yeah. 25 plus years ago, uh, he, he's taught thousands of boys in the local town and I've not been in touch with him. And he came up to me, saw me, you know, I look older, I've got less hair, more beard. And he, he shook my hand and he remembered, you know, that was my name. Um, and it's just been amazing. Uh, and, and, and he's one of the sports coaches at my children's athletics clubs. He lives just down the road, actually, from where I live. Um, we're, we're Facebook friends now. And... Um, see each other regularly um and i think you know that's that's really the power of teaching isn't it he mm. he committed his life to this profession he um wasn't the only reason i wanted to be a teacher because I've, I've i've said other reasons but he was that that figure uh, mm. where he, he he taught he he delivered and he encouraged and yeah he, he's a very well-known man locally um, and, he, and he's changed lives. And I think that's the job to change lives. Yeah. Um, and goodness me, you know, if, if I were to, when I'm 70, if I see a pupil in a barn from 50 meters in the dark and, 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 and recognize them and can remember what I used to call them, I'll, I'll be pleased with myself. I don't think that will ever happen to me. That, that um, would be amazing. It's, it's hard to remember the names of, of children I can remember faces particularly more from secondary school because I think by then they look a lot more like the adult that they will become whereas in primary it can be a bit harder um but to remember names is 
really something. It is, and it, it was a special moment, and uh, it came at a really good time, you know, when we were feeling a bit lost in a new place, or an old place, but it was new to us, do you know what I mean? And um, seeing somebody who remembered me, I was so touched that, that they remembered. Um, it was a powerful thing. You must have made an impression on him as well then, for him to remember your name. Either that or somebody actually told him it, I was coming and it was all a, just a big hoax. But I guess you can genuine. find that out when you when you next see him at athletics. Um, <laughs> and last and final question. Um, this one doesn't um, you know play into whether you get the job or not. Um, but what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, so this is actually quite funny because obviously this is just an audio um, broadcast, but we're on Zoom and I can see myself. And um, I'll come on to this in a second. But when I was first of all. The first thing I can remember is around being about 14 and doing doodles on my art folder mm -hmm. and for some reason deciding I wanted to be a graphic designer, mm -hmm. um, which sounded quite cool. And um, I bought a book about it and I liked the look of it, but then I got a D in art and it didn't seem like such a good idea. <laughs> um, and then in my GCSE summer, that long, hot summer you have, when, when normally, in normal years, you, you do your GCSEs and have a long summer. And um, we had we had a, a lot of work done on our garden at home. And I, I for some of the days, I worked with, it, with the gardener that was doing it. Mm -hmm. And so in an instant, I decided I wanted to be a landscape architect, which was the posh name for it. Mm -hmm. um, and But then decided, uh, actually, you'd have to do that in the winter as well. So I, I went yeah. off that idea. <laughs> uh, but really the big dream and this is why it's funny looking at myself because really the big dream was having watched Top Gun at a young age was that I wanted to specifically be Maverick <laughs> um, the character not not as an adjective and um, <laughs> and I wanted to be a pilot in Top Gun and my dad was in the RAF and it seemed pretty cool and the funny thing is now I'm on this zoom call and, and nobody else can see but I'm wearing a military shirt and camouflage gaming headphones, <laughs> a bit like I'm, a bit like I'm Maverick in Top Gun. It's the closest I'll ever come. Um, so That's yeah, what this podcast several is things. for, just for you to realise that moment. I, I, it's all come together in this evening, <laughs> um, and I'm none of those things. I'm a teacher, really. Yeah, um, but you know, you're not just a teacher, are you? Yeah. You're a school leader and you are somebody who is um, trying to to make a path through such a, a muddy place right now. Um, and I think, I think it's unfair to say that you're just a teacher. You're a lot more than that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, and I wouldn't ever mean just because teachers aren't just teachers. Teachers. No. Teaching do phenomenal work and um yeah, yeah I, I guess I was referring to myself as a teacher rather than a head yeah yeah or even a leader and sometimes I still can't get my my own head around the fact that that's what I do um and because I I fundamentally think I'm a teacher um and I understand yeah, I, that and, and and I really respect that actually as well because I think um it, it, for you it's it's not about the the status or anything it's about making sure that 
you know the children are getting the best learning learning possible um but i just want to say thank you so much it's been i knew it would we'd have a lovely chat um so it's been really fun and um you've definitely made me laugh so thank you um if you haven't listened uh, if you haven't read um steve's blog then do because um I'm sure you'll find it amusing and I'm sure um that this has been helpful for you even if um even if you've gone back to school already and um if you do want to reach out um can they can they message you via your blog if anyone wants to kind of um yeah there's there's an option of um commenting on the blog or um trying to think how else I must get my head around social media I've had some feedback from some of the blogs, some on the on the um, blogging website, and then some I think through um, through Facebook actually. Yeah. Oh, you you've got a Twitter account anyway, um, so yes. we'll make sure that you, you, your Twitter is on there if anyone wants to kind of get in touch because because sometimes people get nice messages. Um, I'm just putting that out there just to see if that happens. Um, you know, sort of say thanks for uh, thanks for sharing on the podcast. Thank you. Um, but yes, thank you so much for joining me and um, we'll get this one out really soon. Thank you very much for your time. All the best. Thank you so much for listening. I think the main theme that stood out to me during the interview was professional judgment. We're going to have to use it, and often, and be trusted to use it as well. It's ironic, really, as usually when every September passes, we feel like our professional judgement is trusted less and less. Maybe this is a turning point. The thing is, it's okay not to know just yet. Not to have 100% of the answers, and take each challenge for what it is as it arises. When one of my members of staff is going through something at Classroom Secrets, I often send them a message which says, Tough times don't last, but tough people do. We're behind you. And so as you head out into an unknown world to get children back in the classroom and learning from you, the experts, I just want you to know that we, all the staff at Classroom Secrets, are behind you. We can't help from a safety point of view, and I know that will be time-consuming, but we've got the curriculum covered. You can trust us with that. You'll find everything that Steve and I talked about in the show notes. So have a look if you're interested. And if it's the first time that you're listening to the Teachers Podcast, then remember to subscribe and do explore the other episodes as I've had some truly inspirational and knowledgeable guests. It's a really great time to tap into some free CPD. And you can also join me in the Teachers Podcast community on Facebook. See you in a few weeks for Season 2. Thank you for listening. The Teachers Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.